All right. We've all been in a place in life where we've had to make changes. And change is, is hard. Life is full of changes. I don't know about you, but uh, there are some changes that I'd just rather not make. We talk about the new normal. There are some things that we just would rather remain normal. We don't want a new normal. But really, if we're to have any real growth in our lives, we often have to go through change, don't we? Uh, Maybe there's been changes of habits, eating habits that we've had to make due to a particular uh, physical uh, issue. Uh, Maybe we've had to make uh, changes in our exercise, uh, again, due to health or uh, whatever it might be, or maybe to achieve a personal goal in a particular athletic event or to accomplish uh, a certain uh, athletic achievement. We've had to make changes in our routine, in our schedule, in our diet, in our exercise in order to accomplish that goal, in order to uh, get that particular uh, physical need met or to alleviate some of the symptoms or whatever the case may be. But the hardest, it seems, the hardest changes to make are the habits, the spiritual changes, the changes of our actions and our attitudes and our behavior. Now, we really, we really hit this hard when uh, we get married. And I've told young people for years, create good habits now while you're young, while you're single, because you want to have good habits going into your married life, because you will begin living with someone, you're, you're, you're married, and now you have to make adjustments. And all those bad habits that you used to just, you know, not make a big deal because you lived on your own, or maybe you had a roommate in college, or a roommate that you, uh, you had before you got married, but there's something different about uh, having a spouse and having to make changes, changes of habits when your spouse is making adjustments as well and they're looking at you and they are sometimes kindly, sometimes not so kindly, encouraging us to make a change in whatever that habit is, whatever that particular uh, action or behavior pattern, make that change in order for there to be a happier home, in order for us to get along better. And one of the problems in our culture, in the selfish, me-first generation that we live in, the culture that's all about self, like like we've been talking about uh, in even our adult Bible study class in the, everything from expressive individualism to bodily autonomy to my truth. And we're in a post-postmodern culture where we d- determine and define our own truth. In that kind of selfish culture, it makes it even more difficult for two selfish people to come together in a married relationship and to, to really make that relationship work in a way that honors and glorifies the Lord and, and that, that really lasts. And and so that's just one illustration of a place where there has to be change in order for that relationship to be right, in order for it to go well, in order for it to uh, be a blessing to others and to each other. So we have to make changes in our life in order to grow, in order to develop. 
in order to kick some bad habits, in order to uh, bring on some good habits, in order to uh, make some sort of adjustment in our lives for the better, ultimately for God's glory. Well, in Ephesians chapter number four, what is Paul addressing here with the Ephesians? Here's a group of people that need some considerable change, spiritually speaking. Think about what some of the Ephesians have been dealing with in a city that had a temple to the goddess Diana. Think about how they have been saved by grace through faith, as Paul writes in Ephesians 2, in verses 8 and 9, and we know uh, verse 10 as well. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. And those of us as believers, we understand the, the changes that must take place, spiritually speaking, in our lives. There are habits that are not good for us spiritually. We can call them addictions or whatever we want to call them. But bad habits ultimately determine, in a sense, our our destiny for life. That's why we talk about character eventually or character producing a destiny. Because our character is what is really going to matter when it really comes down to it. Our character is what is going to take us the furthest in life. And obviously that character must be made and formed by biblical commands, biblical principles, biblical promises. This is the conforming to Christ's likeness that we read in Romans 12, 1 and 2, and in Romans 8, 28 and 29. And God is working. He, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. We know from Philippians that it is God that worketh in us, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. But we are also in that tension, in that balance, we're to work out our own salvation in fear and trembling. So in this sanctification process, Paul brings us in Ephesians 4, and he brings us to verse 20. But ye have not so learned Christ. Okay? So here we are. There are these dregs of the flesh. There are still these habits, there are still these issues, these Ephesians have been saved, they are born again, but there needs to be some change that only the Holy Spirit can produce, but there is a measure of discipline and effort that has to be taken on our parts. It's not let go and let God. I'm not trying to make somebody mad who believes in the let go and let God philosophy. I understand some of that is well-meaning. I'm trusting God. I'm depending upon Him. I get that. But our sanctification process is not a let go and let God. It's not moving sidewalks where we put our luggage down and the sidewalk just takes us to our next gates in the airport. It doesn't work that way. We have to discipline ourselves. I can think right now to how certain habits, certain spiritual disciplines started in my life as early as elementary and junior high and high school. I have to continue to work at them. They're continual, daily, lifelong struggles, lifelong disciplines. But we teach our children to brush their teeth. We teach our children to put the deodorant on. Well, hopefully, right? There were some times at school that I wanted to tell some parents, 
to tell their kids they are in sixth grade now. They need to wear deodorant. Kelly substituted, well, she finished a, a year of sixth grade uh, right before uh, God uh, led us here. And that first recess could be brutal as some of those young men had not learned the habit of personal hygiene when it came, comes to deodorant and sometimes probably even showering. We teach our children we have developed certain personal hygiene habits for good reason, for health and for the benefit of ourselves and others, all right, who have to be around us. But why don't we have good spiritual habits, good spiritual disciplines for our spiritual benefit, for the glory of God and for the edification of others? Well, that requires change many times. Change from carnality and the flesh to a Christ-likeness to being conformed into the image of Christ. So, in order for us to have hope for change, change is not hopeless in the spiritual life. In order for us to have hope for change, we must look at a few principles. So, let's first of all see that change is hard. Change is hard. We have to admit that change can be very difficult. Now, a person gets saved, and I've, I've met... Uh, a few people, and I've heard some testimonies through the years, and all of us are trophies of God's grace, whether you got saved when you were very young or whether you got saved when you were a little uh, later in life. We're all trophies of God's grace. We, we all get saved by grace, uh, by faith alone in Christ alone. It's only by His grace. Amen. I know some of my own personal failures and habits and areas of my weakness and temptation and if it weren't for God saving me, I would be an absolute wreck. If it weren't for the grace of God, looking at my life and knowing my weaknesses and my temptations and my struggles, I would be a disaster if God had not saved me. So we all are trophies of God's grace. We all have a testimony. And all of us are on different levels, different stages in the sanctification process. Some people get saved and immediately the bad language goes away. I know somebody, I know a friend who said he was saved and the, the smoking and the drinking immediately went away. But he really struggled with the bad language. He had no problem immediately dropping the smoking, immediately dropping the drinking, but for whatever reason, it took a long time for his mouth to get cleaned up. I know a man who got saved and it took a while, but he, he realized that he should not be working at a company that made beer bottles. He did not think that as a Christian, he should be working at this factory that produced beer bottles, wine bottles, etc. And he came with a conviction about it, and he eventually left that job. There are all kinds of changes that take, take place when we get saved, and some of those immediately go away. There's a desire to change. There's a desire for Christ-likeness. There's a new creation in Christ Jesus. We have a new life in Christ, new life, new goals, and we talked about that this morning. But some of that sanctification takes place over a longer period of time than other things do. Certain things, when we get saved, might go away right away, but there are other things that take some time. Kelly and I were having a conversation on the way here tonight, and I was talking about uh, a certain political commentator, podcaster that I, I, I enjoy listening to, but, but he's, he, he's a Catholic. He's, he's a conservative, 
and I enjoy listening to his uh, political uh, podcasts, and he has a lot of good points. I disagree with him when he gets into theology and he gets into some of the religious stuff, uh, because he's a staunch Catholic. He's, he's a very committed Catholic. But he talks about how he participates in what I would consider certain sinful or compromising activities. And he says that he can do those things because he doesn't have an addictive personality. Now, I think that is a shallow excuse. I think that's a poor excuse for participating in certain sinful or compromising activity. Because when you think about it, we all have the flesh. Because why is the change so hard? Because the flesh is weak. We don't have the right perspective sometimes on our flesh. We're not making the change. We're not conforming to the image of Christ because we are too accommodating to the flesh. When this man said he doesn't have an addictive personality, I was thinking, hmm, okay, you may not be an addictive person to that particular issue, to that particular substance, or whatever that might be, but all of us are addicted to something in some way. First of all, we're all addicted to self. And we all have addictions of some kind because of the nature of sin and our carnal nature. Now, we're bought with the price, we're the temple of the Holy Spirit, and so there is sanctification that's taking place, there's victory, there's uh, possibility for change and conformity to, to Christ-likeness, but change is hard because the flesh is weak. What did the, what, in Matthew 26, what was the context? Christ was going to the disciples because they kept falling asleep in the hour of greatest temptation, when they should have been in agonizing prayer Next to Christ, who was in agonizing prayer, praying so feverishly that sweat drops of blood were coming from his brow, and what were the disciples doing? Snoozing, catching some Z's. And and, and in that context, Jesus says, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. We give place to temptation. We make provision for the flesh We compromise with the world. We compromise with the flesh. We make it easy to be tempted, make it easy to sin, and then we wonder why we can't change. Why can't I not kick that habit? Why do I keep saying that or doing that? Watching that, listening to that, going there on the internet, whatever it is. Why can I not get away from that? Because sometimes we just don't take seriously the fact that our flesh is weak. Because we like to think of ourselves as strong, especially us as men. We're strong. Our egos many times get in the way. We as men, we're leaders, and we're willing to be adventurers and go out and and to take charge. And and sometimes we're we're just downright stupid because we run headlong into temptation and we don't think about the dangers around us and the temptations. We don't realize the weakness of our own flesh. Why is change so hard? The flesh is weak and... What is it? Again, I've already talked about the flesh and being about self. Well, what is that? The root sin of that is pride. I don't need to change. I don't need to deal with this particular sin habit. It's not that big of a deal, or I don't even see it as sin. It's it's you prudish, whatever, ultra-conservative, legalistic is the word I often hear, too often hear. That change doesn't need to take place 
you just interpret that passage of scripture that way. And many times it just comes down to stinking pride. I don't need the change. You don't have any authority or the word of God is not really saying that. There's all the excuses that are given. Why else is change so hard? The flesh is weak in the sense that we love our comfort and our convenience. I don't have to change. I'm comfortable. Things are convenient for me. It's not that big of a deal. We make those kinds of excuses. I can handle this. Who is it affecting? Oh, that's one of the biggest lies. It doesn't affect anyone. We real, do we realize how much we affect other people? Especially in the home. I'll have to admit that more and more as I, as I get older, I see how much my influence is on my children. And it's scary. It, it's convicting. It's rebuking sometimes. I, I think back uh, through my life and my growing up years and, and my parents and the influence. I mean, there, there are so many ways in which our life affects other people. I think of the people who have influenced my life. We look around this room. We look at our, back in our heritage and our history and, and how God brought us to this place. And we can name so many people. And sometimes, and how do we often say it? More is caught than taught. My sin affects other people. If I'm not right with God, there are ways in which that affects my horizontal relationships. I don't need to or I don't have to change. Dangerous. Dangerous. We do affect others. We affect our testimony. We affect, obviously, our own walk with God. And we do influence others when we are not willing to make changes for Christ's likeness. And we make the excuse or we're content. I don't want to change. I don't feel like it. And we live in a sensual, feel-good culture. If it doesn't feel good, don't do it. If it doesn't entertain me in the eight seconds, I can just swipe right and get another eight second. And if that doesn't entertain me in eight seconds, I can swipe right again. On and on and on. I've talked about the effects on our culture. TikTok. I pick on TikTok. It deserves to be picked on. Because I think TikTok is dumbing down America. I think it's dumbing down the world. There's something that is not only the security risk, but the constant need for being entertained and to have entertainment for others through often just frivolous activities. And ridiculous dances and on and on it goes and then there's the TikTok challenges that are very dangerous and many times illegal and there's even children there was in the news recently a, a child I believe was over in the United Kingdom who was on life support because of a TikTok challenge and he uh, got injured and eventually had to be taken off of life support it was very controversial and the child died and it all started with a TikTok challenge so we have all these things that resist change. Pride, I don't need to. Comfort, convenience, I don't have to. Contentment, I don't want to. And it ultimately boils down to the flesh is weak. But why else is change hard? Simply because of unbelief. Comparison, control, and excuses. 
With social media, we can constantly see ourselves better than somebody else. With all of the headlines, we can constantly compare ourselves and see ourselves better than somebody else. Well, at least I'm not so, like so-and-so on Facebook or Instagram or Snapchat or whatever it might be. At least I'm not like them doing that. Well, at least I'm not like that criminal on that particular documentary, true crime, or on the headline. And we're constantly comparing ourselves by the wrong standard. If we're not comparing ourselves to God's standard, then we will say, well, I'm not as bad as so-and-so, so why do I need to change? Why do I need to conform to Christ's likeness in this area? Yes, God's word says this. Yes, the word of God commands this. Yes, there are these principles that apply, but at least I'm not as bad as so-and-so. That, that was a great sermon this morning, Pastor. So-and-so behind me really needed it. And we find ourselves at times getting more concerned about the people around us who really need that message. I hope they were listening than ourselves because we're in that comparison game. And those who compare themselves among themselves are not wise. And there's the control. And, and this is where we want to control our life. And some of us are perfectionists or mildly perfectionists. Some of us are control freaks. Some of us have OCs in certain ways. And we want control of our life in so many areas, in so many ways, and we don't want to give that to the Lord. So I like to use the illustration of a storage facility or cabinets or closets. And we have those rooms, we have those closets. Maybe you have a junk drawer. I've had a junk drawer all my life. All those little things that you don't know what to do with them, but you're afraid to throw them away because you might need them later, they go in that drawer. Or you may have a room in your house, and when the friends come over, the people come over, everything that you don't want them to see goes in that room. Or you have a closet, and everything goes in that closet, and it gets closed and hidden, and then you come out and say, Mom and Dad, I cleaned my room. You don't want Mom and Dad to look in the closet, right? As a matter of fact, they might get hurt if they open the door. But we do that in our life. I'm not going to change because God can't have that closet of my life. God can't have that drawer of my life. God can't have that room of my life. God can't have that storage unit of my life. You can have everything else, Lord, but you can't have that. I remember talking to a guy one time, and he, he was not a, a spiritual individual at all. And he thought of himself as a really good guy. He was bragging on himself one day. And he said, I'm a really good Christian except in this one area. And he was saying it with all sincerity. It was an obvious area of sin. And he's like, I'm a really good Christian except in this area. And he was saying this to me like he was bragging. Like I, I would cheer him on saying, yeah, that's great. Yeah, you're a great Christian. Instead of, well, you probably should work on that. You probably need to get that because we're to love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We're not to allow any area of our life to be under the control of the flesh. But he was just so proud of himself because he was such a good Christian except in that, that one, one area. Dangerous. And then, of course, he make all kinds of excuses as to why we can't change. Some of them are listed up above. Some of it's redundant. And we have a thousand excuses. The lazy man in Proverbs doesn't go out in the streets because there might be a lion out there. That lion... There's a lion in the streets. Don't expect me to get out of bed and go to work because there's a lion out there. 
yeah, I think the lion is in your head. You're lying to yourself is what I think is going on. All kinds of excuses. I've dealt with enough students through the years that I have heard so many lies and so many excuses. And it's not that the dog ate the homework anymore. It's the computer deleted my book report. The flash drive, it disappeared off of my USB drive. I don't know how. It was so-and-so on the other side of the room. They were the ones talking. Well, did you react to them? Well, yeah, but they, I don't know how many times. You didn't have to respond to their comment. The teacher said something. This person made the comment. They were wrong for making the comment. Why did you have to add to it? Well, you don't understand. It was, the excuses, on and on it goes. And then I found many times with the students that the same ones who were late to school every single day were late to school when we had a two-hour delay. <laughs> were late to school when we had a one-hour delay. When we would have any kind of change in the schedule, they were always still late. What does that say? And it was always traffic. Traffic, that was the excuse, traffic. Well, who doesn't deal with traffic on the way to school, you know? And Kelly and I would get so upset sometimes when the kids were little and we were driving to school and we were dragging four kids to school and we had to be there by 7.15 in the morning. And there are these people coming in with one kid or two kids at 8.05 when school started at 8 o'clock and they'd be talking about traffic and all the other excuses. And we learned it was a habit. Nothing ever changed. They were always late every time because the same things go to bed too late, get up too late, not have things set out in the morning, not having your, your lunch fixed or whatever it might be. Leaving the house at the same time, knowing the same traffic patterns are going to be out there every day, Monday through Friday, and getting there late every day. Nothing ever changed. Excuses after excuses after excuses. Change is hard. But there is hope for change because change is necessary and God gives us commands and principles that we can live by. It is necessary to make spiritual changes. But ye have not so learned Christ. If so be that ye have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. Paul is saying in verse 21, you can change. You have learned Christ. He saved your soul for all eternity. He can change your life right now in this world, on this earth, for His glory. Change you into Christ's likeness. You can be in this life what you are. You can be progressively what you already are positionally in Christ. Now, I don't believe in sinless perfection. I love the Wesleys. And their hymn writing and a lot of their teaching. But I believe it was John Wesley who taught a sinless perfection. I don't agree that we can get to that place where we get sinless perfection. Nor do I believe in a second blessing where you can get anointed with liquid love of the Holy Spirit. And reach a secondary plane of spiritual progression that's higher than everybody else. And basically you quit committing sins of omission or commission because you're now on a, on a higher, higher spiritual plane. Okay? But Paul is saying, you have been saved. 
You have so learned Christ. You have heard him. You've been saved by him. You've been taught by him. The truth is in Jesus. So now, verse 22, put off concerning the former conversation, the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Change is necessary. If we don't, the problem will not go away on its own. It doesn't just disappear. It requires discipline. It requires change of habit. And we know from Proverbs 13 and verse 15, the way of transgressors is hard. We have the command, be holy for I am holy. And every command that God gives us, he gives us the power to obey that command. God wouldn't put a command in the Bible if he didn't give us also the power to obey that command. He gives us the grace to obey when he tells us to obey. Let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. God expects us to be making change to become Christ-like. It's commanded, it's expected, and we're going to be held into account for it. We are going to one day give an account for our stewardship of the life that God has given us. That includes our spiritual habits. That includes our spiritual disciplines. That includes, yes, our talents, our treasures, our gifts, our abilities, our money, our time. But it also includes our habits, our spiritual disciplines, our spiritual development. And we're commanded to do so. So finally tonight, we get to this point that change is possible. Philippians 4, verse 13. Now, Philippians 4 and verse 13 has been popularized by certain superstar athletes. So if you put Philippians 4.13 on your tennis shoes, you're going to dunk the basketball better than everybody else. You're going to have the highest scoring average, highest rebounding average. If you put Philippians 4.13 on your tennis shoes, you're going to shoot like nobody's business, right? You don't have to put in the practice. You don't have to put in the time. You don't have to go to the early morning shootouts. You don't have to go to the the other workouts, right? You just put Philippians 4.13 on your shoes and you turn into an incredible ball player. Is that how it works? doesn't happen that way at all. <clears throat> I think Michael Jordan is the GOAT. You can you get mad at me later if, if you think somebody else is. That's just my opinion for what it's worth. I'm not going to spend four hours on ESPN arguing with somebody as to who the GOAT is. But I think Michael Jordan is the GOAT. And Michael Jordan got, I think he was... Believe me, Michael Jordan has his, his issues. But when it came to basketball, when it came to sports, when it came to playing the game of basketball, that man was obsessed with winning, with being the best. Now, I realize that it became a god to him, but that man got mad at other players on the team who didn't put in 100% at practice. I understand that he got a little bit carried away sometimes with his demeaning language for other players on the team who didn't put forth the efforts that he felt they should have to make the team better. He was driven. He was motivated. He was consumed with competition and with winning and with being the best. I know another athlete, and I'll just use one more illustration of, of another athlete. I think Barry Bonds is one of the greatest baseball players ever. I think that he definitely uh, had some issues with his, his cheating and his drugs, okay? And I'm a big Giants fan, so I'm not here just to, to, to uphold a, a Giants player. 
I think Barry Bonds was, was an arrogant man and uh, kind of a bully. But the, the man was driven. The man practiced. The man worked hard at his swing. He has an incredible swing. Thousands of reps in the batting cage. Thousands of hours studying video. Thousands of hours spent working and perfecting his game. Peyton Manning, I heard, was very similar in spending hours studying the defense of the other team so he could throw the pass just right. It came through work. It came through discipline. It came through effort for a game, for a trophy that you put on a shelf and it collects dust. And for some of them, they didn't even make the Hall of Fame because they were so driven they still had to cheat because they couldn't handle that they weren't the best at that moment where they wanted to make sure that everybody knew they were going to be the best. And they would even cheat to try to get there. For a trophy, for a record book, for a temporary acclaim, where is our drive for spiritual change, for Christ-likeness, for doing all things through Christ, according to His will, according to His purpose, according to His power, by His promises. And we have been given all things. All things are given according to His, his power. Second Peter 1 and verse 3. I'm not going to be able to quote it right if I don't look it up. Second Peter 1 and verse 3. This goes back to the fact that what God has commanded us to do, He has given us the power to do it. According as His divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. He has given us everything we need for salvation and for living the Christian life. We have what we need to be godly. We have to quit making the excuses. So how do we change? I don't want to boil Christianity down to a system of you do these six things and you'll be super Christian. I, I, don't, I don't like formulaic Christianity where... You, you, you just have these formulas that you follow. You know, 40 days of prayer, 40 days of this, because 40 is the, the, the magic number, right? <clears throat> I'm not saying you can't do a 40-day devotional program, okay? I'm not saying you can't do a 40-day this or a 40-day that. That's not my point. But that 40 days, just because the, the, we see the, the number 40 used a lot in Scripture, that doesn't make it magical, okay? But the point is that we, we do these formulas sometimes in Christianity and we think that that's going to solve all our problems and make us spiritual. When we have a relationship with God, that's what we are developing here. Our knowledge of God, our relationship with Him, our love for Him, and that is ultimately where the change is produced. He's talking here in Ephesians chapter number 4 and he talks about the re being renewed in the spirit of your mind. That change begins, yes, in the heart, but there's an intellectual aspect to this. Our mind has to change about that sin, about that bad habit, about that addiction, about whatever that is. Our mind has to change. We repent, we look at it differently, and then we replace. One of the problems in our justice system in America today is the lack of restitution. We put people away, but we don't have much when it comes to restitution. There is some... But I remember growing up, my dad and mom, if we did something that we shouldn't do, we broke something, we had to pay for it or we had to work to replace 
I still remember my dad. I broke, no, no, I had a pencil, and I, and I had it down to about halfway. And I, and I, said, I said to my dad, I said, I'm going to go get myself a new pencil. And my dad said, no, you're not. That pencil has half, half of the pencil left. You're, you're going to use that pencil down till it's, to it, till it's a nub. And in my mind, I thought, that's ridiculous. But it taught me a lesson. As I look back, my dad wanted me to understand you use things, you keep developing, you go through and you finish and you don't waste. And if you mess something up, you fix it. If you break it, you fix it. If you mess it up, you, you put it back together. If you, and we, 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 we try to teach at our house. If you get a glass out, you put it back in the sink or in the dishwasher. If you, if you get the blankets out on the couch, you put them back underneath the couch in, in, the, in, in the, the place where they're supposed to go. And we have in our culture a lack of restitution, a lack of fixing, a lack of completing, a lack of finishing. And many times, if we're not careful, that develops into a laziness of the Christian life. And we're not progressing, we're not changing we're making excuses. We're not replacing a bad habit with a good habit. We'll just quickly go through these as we conclude. Ephesians 4, and we get down to verse 24. And that you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Verse 25, wherefore, putting away lying. That's the putting off, repenting. Changing your mind about lying, deceits, speak every man truth with his neighbor. What happens to the liar? He becomes a truth teller. That habit of lying needs to be replaced. Repenting of the lying and now practicing truth telling. We go down, the thief. We go down to uh, verse, actually, uh, verse 26. Be angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. So instead of being an angry man, you become a peacemaker. Verse uh, 27, neither give place to the devil. Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good that he may have to give to him that needeth. So instead of being a thief, instead of being someone who steals, becomes an industrious, a hardworking person who gives. Amen. We see that... Verse 29, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. The corrupt communicator, instead of telling the dirty jokes and using the filthy language, is now using their tongue for good, to edify, to encourage, to build up, to speak the truth, and to be a blessing to others. And then we go down finally in verses 30 through 31, grieve not the Holy Spirit, Verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice and be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. The bitter, angry person referenced earlier and also down in verse 31 and 32. The bitter, angry person becomes a kind and forgiving person. That's the kind of change. Abraham Lincoln, I close with this illustration. Abraham Lincoln at the end of the Civil War, he used scriptural principles in what he wanted to do to restore the South. And in his policies that he was trying to implement, he started with 
Ulysses S. Grant, who gave the Confederate soldiers their horses and their uh, supplies, took away their guns and their swords, but, but gave them what they needed to return home at Appomattox Courthouse at the surrender. But then Abraham Lincoln's goal in the restoration of the South, he, he said, with malice toward none, with charity for all. And whatever your opinion is on Abraham Lincoln, I appreciated the fact that though he didn't live to see the day, Abraham Lincoln had in his mind a restoration of the South that included a charity, that included a love, that included a provision. And I believe it was even Ulysses S. Grant at the surrender there, he said, they are our fellow citizens, speaking of the Confederates. We're going to treat them with respect. There was a malice that was replaced with a charity and a love. So as we come to an end here, as we come to a close tonight, we can think of habits, we can think of things that need to change. We have the principles, but what about when it comes to our relationships that are sometimes the hardest things to change? We ask God for forgiveness, we take care of that bitterness and that anger, but it requires maybe a step of going to somebody and asking for their forgiveness or saying, I forgive you, and then going the next step and beginning to work on that relationship. It can begin right at home with kids to parents. It can be to brother to sister. It can be in the workplace. But it often takes that extra step. Yes, asking God to forgive, but then going to that person and beginning to work on that relationship. Notice how many of these involve relationships. And that's where change really begins to take root and really begins to solidify in our lives. And it builds a strong home, and it builds a strong church, and it makes for an incredible testimony to a lost and dying world because they see true, lasting change that's done only by God through Jesus Christ. That is a powerful testimony to the world, especially when it involves family, and there's healing, and the world doesn't understand how that can happen. But we can give testimonies because of Jesus Christ. Change is possible, but it's possible only through Jesus Christ. True and lasting change is only possible through him. May we go out from here, from this place, and be a changed people more like Christ. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for these principles from your word. Help us, Lord, to live them out. Help us, Lord, even this week to practice these disciplines and these principles. And Lord, make us willing to change and help us to do the things necessary to form those new habits and to be a changed people more like you. That we will have opportunities to be a, a testimony, to share the gospel with others, and to show the work that you have done in our lives and give testimony to that. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.